Um, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I am a political science uh, faculty member, and I'm the Democracy Commitment Coordinator at Moraine Valley. And the Democracy Commitment is a nationwide initiative with community colleges to try to promote and enhance civic literacy on our campus and with our students. And today's event is on the civil unrest that we have um, been experiencing in the United States. And um, we wanted to focus on some of the significant uh, fissures and conflicts that uh, we have all viewed on our television screens and heard about um, or witnessed. So the past 12 months has been very tumultuous. Um, there are many different um, fissures in the United States and it is beyond the scope of this event to be able to discuss all of those thoroughly. However, we would like to examine the significant increase in homicides in the past year, the continued strain uh, relations between police and the communities that they've served, and the potential for domestic threats that we may be facing in the future. Um, I'm very happy uh, to be joined by an excellent uh, panel members today. Um, I'm very uh, thankful that they are um, willing to share and volunteer their insights today. Uh, I'm joined by panel members, Dr. John Roman. He's a senior fellow of economics, justice and society at NORC at the University of Chicago. His research focuses on evaluations of innovative crime control policies. He's a fellow at the Academy of Experimental Criminology and serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Experimental Criminology and Drug Re Court Review. He's received awards for excellence in research from the National Institute of Justice, the Division of Experimental Criminology, and American Society of Criminology in the Urban Institute. I'm also joined by Mary Fafleese Dunkel. She is, uh, wears a lot of hats at Moraine. She's a history, political science, and sociology professor. She is also our campus study abroad coordinator. And finally, we are joined by Matthew Harland. Uh, Matthew is a police officer. He is also a faculty member at Moraine and a part-time criminal justice professor. And he's also a Marine veteran. Uh, both uh, Mary and Matthew are Moraine Valley alums, and we're very glad that they are able to join us today. So um, with that, I would like to ask our first question for the panel, but I also want to remind our audience that there is an opportunity for you to ask questions via the chat um, on WebEx. So we will get to questions a little bit later in our time this morning, um, but feel free to ask questions and we will get to those um, by the end of our event. So this past year, we have had a massive one-year rise in homicide rates. Um, there was an NPR article um, recently that cited data uh, consultant Jeff Asher who stated, we're going to see historically the largest one-year rise in murder that we've ever seen. Uh, he said that murder is up about 37% among the 57 agencies that had data through at least September of 2020. And John, you have written that there is no vaccine for violence. 
and that you expect violence to be worse in 2021 than 2020. I was hoping you could elaborate on this. Sure. Um, so thanks for uh, including me in the panel. I'm, I'm delighted to have a chance to, to sit with you all and, and have this really important conversation. Uh, I think that the, the, the rise in violence, so my prediction, and I'll tell you why I'm predicting this, is that the summer of 2021 will be almost as bad in terms of violence across the United States as it was in 2020 and 2022 may well be as, as well and beyond. Um, the effects of what we've seen in the last year from, from the COVID epidemic, from the George Floyd uh, homicide and, and the resulting protest um, are both are things that um, that, you know, that will have long term repercussions for society. So in terms of violence, I think what you saw is we, I've seen a million explanations for why violence was up in 2020. Jeff Asher updated that data set that you just talked about, Kevin through the end of the year and what you see are 48 of the 50 biggest cities in the United States had significant increases in, in uh, homicide in 2020 compared to 2019. And that the overall increase was the, the largest one year increase that, that frankly we've ever seen. We might've seen something like this back in the twenties during prohibition, but the documentation isn't good. So this, this is unparalleled. I think that, that mainly, you know, we are all these reasons why this might've happened. And I think that the main explanation is really very simple. It's really that, you know, when you have dense clusters of young men with very little to, to do, who aren't employed, aren't in school and aren't in training, you have a recipe for violence, the dense being really critical, a lot of young people together. So what COVID did was it took young men out of school, out of jobs, out of the workforce, out of training programs, put them back in their neighborhoods, in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods where, where disadvantage is concentrated, um, um, what you see are a lot of prior conflict, a lot of prior beefs. Um, then you take all the people involved in those beefs and you put them at home with nowhere to go and nothing to do. And sort of not surprisingly, what happens is that, that a lot of those fights escalate and there's all sorts of new violence. Now, when there's new violence, now you have new beefs, you have new grounds for retaliation. And that just doesn't just go away. We all get vaccinated, we go back to our lives, they go back to school, they go back to their jobs. Those resentments, those conflicts will continue into this summer. They're not resolved just because people have, have the ability to leave their houses. And in fact, in many ways, they're probably worse because this, the sort of institutional responses to those conflicts aren't there. State and local governments have experienced massive declines in revenue because of uh, the COVID-19 restrictions on our economic behavior. People are going out less, they're spending less, it's less tax revenue collected by local and state governments. They've had to cut tons and tons and tons of people off the payrolls. This again is something that's happening in every state, virtually every state, virtually every county, every, every local government. And so the kinds of things that they cut this are supports for the programs that help these disconnected young men. Um, these are places for them to go, like community, um, you know, community centers. These are things for things to do, special programs. These are all sorts of social and emotional supports to help them with past trauma that they've experienced. Violence in these neighborhoods just repeats and repeats and repeats and has cumulative trauma for people that need to be addressed that manifests itself in, in emotional problems, mental health problems, uh, substance abuse problems, alcohol, drugs, um, and all the supports for that are gone. 
So you have a whole bunch of new beefs, you have a whole bunch of people with new problems on top of layers and layers and layers of existing trauma. You have less support for them, and those institutions are always the last to recover. And it's not just the governments, it's the churches, it's the community-based organizations and nonprofits. All that institutional and structural support is reduced. So there's really no reason to believe that things will just magically get better once people are vaccinated. These problems are going to persist. And they're going to persist until we make the kinds of substantial investments in these really disadvantaged places that would cause them to be um, to be better places to grow up and to live. Thank you. And uh, before we go on to a new question, I just wanted to check with either Mary or Matthew to see if they had any comments that they would like to add. Did Mary have something? Okay. Uh, I would just say that uh, I agree very much with what John said. And uh, a lot of the social programs, we've seen the budget crunches just dealing with the numbers within villages and municipalities in our areas. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, a long protracted effect. And uh, the services, the last services to get cut are generally those last essential services. So we're going to see those police interactions on you know my level because a lot of those support networks are not in place to defer or delay those uh, the, the youths from from other opportunities because of that systemic disadvantages that they that they come through so not only to see that there'll probably be more infighting around the uh, the actual communities themselves but they're going to be left with the, the last ditch um, last ditch service that most places are able to offer and that's police service so we're going to have to be able to pivot on our end to make sure that we are providing the most appropriate services that I think Matthew may have gotten cut off there with internet connection, um, and and he will return when he can. Yeah, we can, um, but it's a it's a long systemic. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry. Oh, that was that was the last thing I, I was going to say. Sorry, the uh, the cut off right there on my, my right as I was ending. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, there was an article in um, the New York Times in, in August of 2020, and, and the headline is Confidence in Police is at Record Low. And they cite a Gallup poll from July 2020 uh, showing that for the first time since Gallup began tracking confidence in the police in 1993, that the confidence dipped below 50% for the first time. The same poll found that only 11% of Blacks have confidence in the criminal justice system. Uh, in this article, they cite um, the co-founder and chief executive of the Center for Policing Equity, and he's a professor of African-American studies at psychology, uh, in psychology at Yale. And he says that having a majority of Americans that lack confidence in police is unprecedented. It creates pro a problem for public safety because compliance with the law begins with trust in it and not fear of it. So this raises a whole host of questions, but I, I just wanted to, to perhaps start with John and, and Matthew. Um, there's been so much discussion nas nationally about police reform, and there's been all kinds of labels and names associated with it. But from your perspectives, what changes can be made in law enforcement or society or government policy to help regain that trust, confidence, and legitimacy of um, the communities in which police serve? Well, 
Matthew's the the on the ground expert, and uh, I think has extremely important things to say. Let me just give you a sort of the you know satellite view of this question. Um, I think it's fair to say that there are two different things that are reflected in that call. By the way, the the, the professor there, Phil Goff, has an amazing TED talk uh, on how um, law enforcement agencies can can reduce their use of force. Um, absolutely worth worth your time. It's pretty fantastic. Um, the so so there's two different things going on, right? So at one level, you have America, society at large, that watched the George Floyd video and was horrified and has seen many of these Walter Scott running away from the police, Smear Rice, you know, um, shot within, you know, less than two seconds of when law enforcement arrives, just all these, these images, and has been shocked. And this, and this, you know, at the idea of unarmed black young men, overwhelmingly, um, being, being, being killed in interactions with police that don't seem to, on the face of it, to warrant that response in any way. And so you see these legitimacy numbers crumble. Um, that's one side of the problem. A, a more important side of the problem is where the legitimacy numbers didn't crumble because they're already terrible, which is in these communities that are over-policed and have seen these kinds of police uses of disparate, racially disparate police use of force over and over again, decades or generations, where the numbers are what they've always been, which is to say there's this big lack of trust in police. Now, it's really important. Legitimacy as a concept isn't requested, it isn't asked for, it is, it is given to somebody who you believe has earned it. So there's no way for the police to go on a public relations campaign and say, we are legitimate, you know, <laughs> you have to go out and you have to earn it every day in interactions on the street. So it really requires police agencies to, to move beyond the mindset of community relations, which is a messaging campaign, to policing activities and logistics and how police come to interact with the police. And I think, I think there's a fundamental thing that's not been talked about very much, and I'll just say this one thing and stop. When police respond to a call for service, over when a citizen calls and says, this thing is happening, I need your help, that the reaction to that is overwhelmingly positive in every community. That when the police initiate an interaction with a civilian, where the police see something, see somebody riding a bike on the sidewalk, see a drug dealer going on, seeing some kids looking dangerous, hanging out on a corner, maybe some, some kids they know have been dangerous in the past. Those are adversarial interactions by their very nature. And it's from those interactions that the, the questions about police legitimacy come. So I think police need to focus carefully on how they have these adversarial interactions, when they have them, why they have them, when are they necessary, when are they avoidable, are there prevention strategies, are there deterrent strategies, are there other things that can be done to avoid those adversarial interactions? Um, because that really is, those interactions are really the crux of, of the problem. Yeah, to uh, build a little bit on what John said, there's that uh, the Gallup poll that you mentioned, and to also build up a little bit of dichotomy of there being some different different areas to look at. There was a second Gallup poll, I believe, a couple of weeks after that one, that indicated roughly 81% of minority respondents in that wanted more police service in their own jurisdiction. So we have this 
this dueling uh, representation of a, a nationwide perspective of a lack of confidence because of what we see. Um, but we have a local perspective of confidence or desire for more policing based off the interactions that we that we have. Uh, I kind of look at it as even in those adversarial relationships and adversarial encounters that we have, we always have to be careful that, uh, you know, we're abiding by the rule of law. And that's not just the rules that people are expected to follow. Those are the limits placed on the authority of our police officers. I think that's one uh, good perspective that we train a lot of the police officers in our area to understand what they are allowed to do, what they're expected, and what the limits to those authorities are. Because that adversarial relationship, sometimes we have to do things where people aren't going to like us, even when we're, you know, in a domestic violence situation, trying trying to help somebody. Even then, we're trying to help one person, but nobody in that household might like us. So there's a, a little bit of understanding and sort of perpetual legwork that we have to put into not just community relations, but building a sense of understanding and empathy that we're we're out there to conduct ourselves in a particular way, that we're not exceeding that authority and that we're doing so with those, those tenets of our founding documents, you know, to, pr to protect life, liberty, and livelihoods of our of our communities. We have to we have to make sure that message is clear and consistent. Kevin, is it okay if I chime in here for a moment too? Sure, absolutely. Uh, and talking about the idea of, of confidence in policing, uh, part of the, one of the reasons I'm on this panel is to talk about my own experience, having studied, um, done my master's thesis on the troubles in Northern Ireland, and if you looked at um, the confidence that the one segment of the population in Northern Ireland, mainly Catholics in Northern Ireland, had in policing, that number would have been under 10% years ago. Uh, in 2019, before the pandemic began, it, the overall number of, of public confidence in the police was close to 70%. Now that's overall, that, that's not broken down in terms of Catholics and Protestants, but that in and of itself is an amazing number. Um, now that number has actually gone down uh, due to some issues, issues with the pandemic, but I was hoping if it's okay, if I can maybe jump in and talk a little bit about what happened in Northern Ireland to give some context and perhaps to offer an example of a place where um, a, a police force that had some significant problems and now is seen as an example throughout the world of how things can get significantly better. Because there are a lot of similarities between some of the issues that we talked about talk about here in the United States um, and, and there in Northern Ireland. So if that's okay. Sounds um, good. Thank you, uh, gentlemen. I'm going to just share... Um, you'll indulge me just a moment here. There we go. Okay. So if you look at this map, and I'm, I'm going to try to keep this, we're talking about hundreds of years of history, but I'm going to make this as succinct as possible. Uh, for those that are not aware, so the island of Ireland is partitioned. Northern Ireland up here is legally part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland demographically is consistent of a Protestant majority and a Catholic minority. If you look at the rest of the, Rep the Republic of Ireland is different, right? They're, they're a Catholic ma uh, majority and a very small Protestant uh, minority. Mary, uh, it's, it's still on your opening slide. It is, okay, because I can see it, let's see. So I, I think there's on the left side of the, of the, the uh, screen, you can uh, see a number. Right. And you can I'm actually toggle it yourself. I'm oh. seeing page two on mine. I don't know okay. why. Sorry, my bad. Oh, can, can you see it on yours now? Or yes. No? Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm like, oh, can John and Matt, you guys can see it? Page two? Okay, thank you. Um, so this, this partition happens back in the 16th century because essentially during the Elizabethan era, uh, Scottish and English settlers are encouraged to come into the part of Northern Ireland and settle there into plantation style systems that essentially sets the stage for this partition that becomes legal in the 20th century. 
And so you have this, this, this strange difference where Northern Ireland is, made, is, is a legally separate country, part of, part of the UK, and has a 60% Protestant majority and 40% minority. Now this leads to political problems and eventually a 30-year conflict uh, that they're still seeing the, the repercussions of years later. And I'm skipping a lot of history, please forgive me, but it's, there's, <laughs> there's more, I wanna get to the modern stuff. So the, just like in the United States, uh, the Catholic minority complained of a lot of, of um, discrimination in terms of, of lack of sufficient housing, difficulties in obtaining good employment, uh, difficulties in setting up and having a proper education. And these, these, the civil rights movement goes from being just basically peaceful demonstrations into clashes that became a bit more, um, more deadly, where the British army is then sent in in the late 60s to kind of quell this violence which in turn sets off even more violence and leads to a 30 year struggle between, uh, and, and it's, it's, too, it's too simplified to say simply between Catholics and Protestants. It's much, more, uh, it's much more nuanced than that, but for the sake of expediency, we're just gonna kind of stick with that. Um, the mural that you see behind you is, is a Bloody Sunday, and that leads to uh, a significant growth in paramilitary organizations um, like the Irish Republican Army, which have been around for a long time, or on the Protestant side, you had groups like the Ulster Volunteer Force, or the Loyalist Volunteer Force. Um, and so you had this, this tit-for-tat violence that goes on for about 30 years of you know, bombings back and forth with the, with the British Army there, uh, you know, kind of in trying to keep the peace, but also sometimes also part of the violence, and uh, going on until basically the 1990s. And again, I'm skipping a lot of it, please forgive me. But by the time we get to the 1990s, you have a population that is just war-weary. And if you look at it, there are about 3,500 people who were killed. And you might say as an American, well, that's, you know, we had that number of people almost killed on 9-11. That's not that high of a number. But when you consider it proportionate to the population, 1.5 million people, that's a lot of people. Everybody there, oops, I don't know why that just changed. But every, some, everyone in Northern Ireland knows someone that was uh, um, affected by it. Now, why is this changing without me doing anything to it? Um, okay. And so by the time we get to the mid-90s, basically people want peace. And so we get in 1997, signed in 1998, the Good Friday Peace Accords that all of the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland vote on overwhelmingly in favor of. And part of the reforms that are recommended in, in the Good Friday Peace Accords is the issue of policing that comes up again and again and again. And so a separate commission is assigned to issue a report and they, they basically interview all the main parties involved in, in the, the, Pat, the patent report issued in 2000. And, and here are some of the recommendations that are, are issued. So if you look at this picture here, this is of the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Now for someone like me coming from the outside, I'm sure Matthew and John and, and probably Kevin would know a little bit better about this than I would, but coming in as a student there, I, in the beginning, I had a, a difficult time basically trying to differentiate between who were the police and who, were, who was the army because the police were highly militarized. Oftentimes they would drive around in armored personnel carriers that were not identified, they were unmarked. Um, you know, the, and, and they were you know, uh, very, uh, wore very heavily military tactical gear. And, and in the beginning, I had a hard time knowing who was who. Obviously, the longer I was there, that became clearer. But part of the problem was they were, they were very, very militarized. Um, one of the other major criticisms that came from a lot of, a lot of different parties was this lack of diversity. And so we're talking about, Matthew was talking about the idea of, of policing kind of within the community. Well, if the, if the police do not resemble or do not reside within that community or know kind of people on the ground there, it's difficult to establish that trust and that understanding. One of the other big problems was that some of the members of these Protestant military, paramilitary organizations 
like the Loyalist Volunteer Force or the Ulster Volunteer Force, were believed also to be members of the police of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which that would be sort of akin to members of the police here being members of the Proud Boys, let's say, um, which would be kind of a, a nightmare scenario, right? So that was a major concern. And this idea of a lack of accountability with ad hoc killings and um, just uh, um, going unaccounted for and, and not being recognized and a feeling that there was a, a lack of justice all around. So with these criticisms then came a series of recommendations. And so this was, these were some of the, the, the recommendations of the patent report, that they have to address this transparency, uh, the lack, excuse me, the lack of transparency. And one of them, this is a minor thing, but I put it on there just to give you an idea of how some of these were extremely minor recommendations and some of them were very, very major ones. And one of the minor ones was to just write the name police on the outside of their vehicles to identify them to really work on, on heavily recruiting more Catholics and, and more women. And I like this quote I put on there, the idea of, of police engaging in policing within the community and then communities being able to engage in policing with the police. And so if you look at some of these pictures here, you'll see these are of different um, demonstrations that took place in Northern Ireland over the years. As a side note, Northern Ireland has about 3000 parades that take place every single year. And with, along with those parades come a lot of protests and so they've kind of become the experts on how to deal with some of these, but you'll see some water cannon being sprayed above in the one top picture and rubber bullets being used in another picture. So they've kind of become the experts in that, but that it, establishing that trust and kind of some of those changes has taken a long time. So in order to get that trust, I wanted to include also this, this quote from the patent report, um, this idea, because we hear this a lot here, right? Whether it's about policing or just any organization, the idea that, well, you know, every organization has bad apples, that we just sort of have to deal with this. And the patent report says pretty unequivocally that, no, it, we just have to, this has to be dealt with. This cannot be swept under the rug, no matter if it's, if it's you know, one or two bad apples or, or many more than that. So initially, the patent report was looked at, um, there was not a lot of buy-in. And it was, it was derided by a lot of, uh, of, of unionist politicians, Protestant politicians, and it took a lot of support and some pushing from the United States, from the European Union, from different human rights organizations to kind of get there to be some kind of teeth to this. But it, it took some time, but they got there. And while some of the some of the the changes began superficially, and you could see some of those changes in the pictures that you see, right? So the upper right hand picture there is of a police car. Oh, it's a now a white squad, squad car, right? With like the blue and the yellow on there, painted on there. Or you'll notice that they still had armored personnel carriers, but they're, you know, police is painted on them <laughs> in very bright coloring and, and with white. Um, more women on the force. They set up a, a goal of having, recruiting 30% more uh, Catholics within 10 years, and they're at now 32%. Now there are others that will say, that will criticize and say they should be at a higher amount, but you know, they're, they're, part of the problem is that they're still seeing that within the Catholic community, there's still some a lack of buy-in. So it's not just simply because they're not trying to recruit, they are, just that it's hard to get people to kind of get on board with that. So a lot of their symbolism has changed. You know, they removed, like the, the term Royal Ulster Constabulary, if you were a Catholic, those words were loaded, the idea of Royal and Ulster Constabulary. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of leave that to the side for now, but just the, the idea of that, that the, the name even being changed to simply being the police service of Northern Ireland is much more innocuous than uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary. And this idea of, the more, of more accountability. So having an ombudsman office so that you could account for, okay, if something goes wrong, to be able to go to it and, and issue, file a complaint and say this and this and this have happened. 
but not just that with that you know that the independent police oversight to also have an independent oversight commission that it, that regularly issues independent audits of the progress of the PSNI and makes them public and that was that was something that had never been done before in Northern Ireland and so the idea that they've they've gone from having you know like a very very low trust in police to having a, you know, close to 70% pre-pandemic um, tells you quite a bit about some of the progress that's been made. And the PSNI now is seen as an exemplary police force that now trains throughout the world, it trains other police forces for how they can make, make uh, institute changes in their own police forces. And this, this last uh, picture, I think, kind of says it all, at least to me. Um, this is a picture of Sinn Féin politicians. Now, Sinn Féin was the political arm of the Irish Republican Army for years. They're now one of the, the biggest political uh, parties in Northern Ireland, which that, and that's a whole other story. But if you look at the picture carefully, they're holding up, they are with the, the, um, the head of the PSNI and they're holding join PSNI recruitment posters. This was in February of 2020. So they are now campaigning for the PSNI to be able to recruit more Catholics, more women, et cetera. So that in and of itself tells you how far Northern Ireland has come. And I know I've taken up a lot of time already, but I'm gonna I'll kind of stop there. And gentlemen, if you'd like to kind of, you know, type, because I wanna stay in my lane, I know about more Northern Ireland, but if you wanna chime in on anything else that, that um, kind of rings a bell, please feel free to do so. But I will, I will mute myself here and allow, uh, allow you guys to chime in, please. I had, uh, I had one question for you, Mary, because this came up in our pre-meeting too, when you talked about the military being involved in Northern Ireland as well. Uh, you know, here in the United States, we don't, allow our military to operate domestically with the exception of the National Guard with very limited and specific authority for, for exigencies and by, and by governor order. Um, but I've been, had the chance to travel around the world too and a lot of places um, either solely rely on their military to do the domestic policing or there's a, there's a heavy concentration of it. Uh, I, uh, full disclosure, I push back a little bit on the uh, militarization of police. And if any questions come up about that, I, I'm more than happy to talk about it. But I was curious from, from your perspective of actually seeing the military involved, um, how did that alter your perspective of the policing, so to speak, that was going on in there? Are you asking how did I, my perception of how the way that the British Army interacted with people on the streets, do you mean? Is that what you're asking? Or I want to just be clear. Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, uh, they changed the name of the uh, constabulatory to, uh, you know, the police and they kind of rebranded it. Um, was that affected in part by the actual, by, by the legitimate, the actual militarization of the police actions? Or did that play into, into the legitimacy factor of it? Okay, I wanna make sure I'm, I'm, I'm in it. So the, the British Army, when I was there in 2000, the British Army was still there on the ground patrolling. They'd have constant helicopters kind of buzzing in the air, but they were withdrawn a couple of years later and they've been gone since then. Um, and those changes then to the to the um, Royal Ulster Constabulary took place then over a couple of years afterwards. So between 2000 and 2010, a lot of those changes were made um, slowly. And of course, there were all sorts of, of kind of concerns that this would, they would be taking, removing the teeth from the RUC, that it would cause a, a more violence to break out, um, and that it was um, just lead to catastrophe overall, basically. Um, so that was a, a, a major concern. Now that really hasn't seemed to have happened. Um, and, I, and so my, my interactions with them before, um, I didn't really interact very much with the RUC or with the, with the British Army, other than to, I did interview the Royal Ulster Constabulary about parading at one point. 
Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm answering your the question that you're asking properly. And I apologize if I'm not, but. Oh, no, that, that I was just seeking perspective on it um, from somebody who's actually been somewhere where the military was actually involved um, versus here in the United States, where the militarization is is more of an appearance of how, how it's perceived versus actually having the military involved. I was just, just curious about your experience with that. The British Army used to be on the streets. They would patrol on the streets. So on the Shankill Road, which is where like a, a very Protestant loyalist neighborhood, which there's a peace wall that separates, that's still there, that, that separates um a Catholic, you know, Republican neighborhood and a Protestant um, uh, uh, loyalist neighborhood. Uh, there were oftentimes there were bombings. So there, at the time that I was there, there was a heavy uh, British Army presence. They would try to kind of stay as quiet as possible and just kind of stay out of the way. Um, but they were they were ever present, and so you just kind of knew that they were always there. And like I said, the, the helicopters is something I will I will always remember because uh, I would you would hear stories that you know from people on the ground that well they were, they always know what's going on. So, you know, that if you were talking about them, that you get to the next checkpoint when there used to be checkpoints in Northern Ireland and they'd say, well, you, you know, that we, we heard you talking about us kind of thing. So there's this kind of paranoia feeling that the army was always listening to what was going on. That has that feeling of paranoia and that, that I think that the much more interaction with the, with the military has definitely backed off in Northern Ireland. It's a very different place now. And I'd say as evidenced, even in the day to day interactions with having um, a much more diverse society. I don't even just mean with Catholics and Protestants, with much more, many more foreigners coming in and with a lot more just, just this is gonna sound kind of odd, but a lot more cafes, a lot more diversity of restaurants and just a different feeling while we're on the streets. Um, and that was not there when I was there as a student. When I went back in 2010, like a completely different place. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your question. Before I move sure. on to any new questions, I just want to check to see if John, if there's anything you wanted to add. You're muted, John. Sorry about that. Um, the, this is a big question about police militarization in the United States. So the so the um, the military started program. You know, more than 10 years ago now where surplus military equipment what could be sold to local police departments and a lot of departments have chosen to 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 take on that equipment and so you'll see you know mine resistant uh vehicles in the streets of towns of 10,000 people um i think the, the, the that I think, and I think that Matthew was part of your question, right? Is it the equipment or is it the, the actual military that is the differentiator? And we don't know that obviously in this country because we haven't had the military presence in the same way. So we can't sort of conduct that test statistically, but there's clearly a change in, in the relationship between the communities that are policed in this way and the police and not in a good way. Um, from the you know, the emergence of you know sophisticated tactical gear on officers engaged in routine patrolling that weren't there 20 years ago, the use of these of equipment that you know if you watch if you watch TV shows from the 80s, you'll see officers patrolling uh, in uh, you know in pants and a uniform shirt and you know maybe they have a, a sidearm maybe they don't and now everybody's in tactical gear um, and I get it I like pockets too. Um, but the signal it sends is that there's us and there's them, that this is an oppositional relationship, it's adversarial, um, that the police are uh, looking at civilians as if they are in some way the enemy that, that uh, society, whatever that is, needs to be protected against. 
And this sort of signaling, I think, is is very strong and very important. It's, it's a big part of what we need to change going forward. Um, more to say about that. Yeah, I I think that's a an excellent point to to to, to bring up, and that the the changes of you're right. You know, Matthew brought up that we don't have military unless it's the National Guard, but but to that point of the militarization of the police. Um, based on the time that we have, I, I want to move forward, but I guess real quick, Mary, that success story of Northern Ireland, I think is, is, is a good one. And, you know, gives me some optimism, but I just, you know, and, and obviously not all examples can really, uh, be compared, you know, but that being said, if we take the optimism, what is the time, what was the time frame of, of, uh, so, I mean, you, you cited a more recent poll of trust in the police, but, should Americans consider this like multiple generation challenge here of, of, of improving or, you know? You definitely have to take the long view. I mean, initially when this, like I said, this was panned when, when the patent report was initially issued. And if I could just say something quick to, to John's point, some of the, the, the changes in Northern Ireland are definitely superficial. So they still have APCs, they just painted them white. Right. So it just said they're still there. They just look a little more innocuous. Um, but yeah, initially the patent report was viewed as uh, like a disastrous. And it wasn't until though there was actual significant push from political push from, like I mentioned, the, the US, the EU. And the US was a very significant partner because we had helped negotiate um, the Good Friday Peace Accords initially. That and, and that there was then more about pressure put on, on Northern Irish politicians to start taking this seriously. And it was seen that this was just going to be kind of more of a joke and it's not going to succeed. But against kind of all odds, it, it began to take shape. And now even the even the police themselves, they're very um, proud of the fact that they have, they, you know, there's jokes about calling them the patent police force because they have taken on these reforms and, and, and really done so well with them. So we're talking about 20 years. So, I, I mean, if anyone thinks that this is going to be fixed in just a couple of years, I think that's, it's, you know, doesn't didn't happen overnight and it's not going to change overnight. Northern um, Ireland still has a long way to go, especially if you're looking in the context of Brexit and talking about borders and all that kind of stuff there. But, um, I, yeah, there's no there's no way that I think this is going to be fixed in, in, you know, just a couple of years. But I think even if you start to make some small changes, well, again, those superficial ones, I always joke about fake it till you make it. There's truth to that. You start to make people feel a little bit better and a little, a little bit more confident. And I think that that can start to, over time, build up that trust. That was, my plan here is to, to change gears a little bit, but just to go to um, another part of the equation of the um, police and community relations. And, and John had earlier mentioned about the interactions of uh, the adversarial interactions uh, being more of the the issue than the the nine one calls uh, that are directly bringing people um, who are requesting police services. So I just wanted to to talk a little bit about that. Um, and the, the group is more familiar with this based on our previous interactions, but. Um, there's a PBS Frontline documentary from this past summer. Um, it's called Policing the Police. And Jelani Cobb, um, who is the primary um, leader of, of this uh, documentary, there's a segment where he is interviewing um, the Newark Fraternal Order of Police uh, uh, president. And he, uh, Jelani Cobb talks about, we've heard about the stress of being a police officer over and over again. Many cops feel like they're under siege from all sides. 
And um, when he interviews uh, James Stewart, um, he talks about James Stewart's a fourth generation police officer in New York. And he was he, he's talking about how perhaps today he doesn't know if his kids would want to be a police officer. He's like, it's everybody against us. And it's like, F the police. Um, that's become the way of the community now. You, you know, I mean, who's the guy who's going to say, I want to be a newer cop? Uh, the pay is low. They're getting oversight from basically all directions. And um, so I just, you, you know, he at one point brings up, what if there's a scenario where you need to subdue a guy um, or you're, you're driving down the street and, you know, you, you face this negative opposition in all directions. And he says, hey, you know what? Maybe he doesn't have to go to jail. Maybe I'll take the path of least resistance. Maybe I'll put the blinders on as I'm driving by the corner where 10 guys are hanging out. So I, my point or my question is, is does there become, is morale of police a concern to where they might be less likely to engage in some of those more adversarial interactions that you were discussing earlier, John? So um, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now with my question. I hope that makes sense. It's a lot to unpack there. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of questions in one. Uh, <laughs> so, so let me just, I'm, I'm gonna say like seven things really fast, okay. Uh, one thing to say is that um, uh, we can help the police out by putting police in better positions to be successful which we don't do. Um, we can take a lot of burden off of police. We can automate a lot of traffic stuff so that police officers do not need to walk. If, if you're a police officer in the United States, what separates you from a police officer in Northern Ireland is that when you walk up to a car that you've pulled over, there may well be a gun in that car. And that completely changes the dynamics of that interaction in ways that don't happen in Europe because there aren't any guns in that car. So the constant presence of guns is a real issue for police officers' safety, and it is a big part of why these these uh, these interactions are so adversarial. So, uh, and there, and by the way, we added about a million new guns a month to American society since the pandemic started in March. So this problem has gotten substantially worse. Those guns leak into illegal markets. It's not a good setup. So we have a gun problem and we have to get serious about it. If we're ever going to get serious about our police problem, we have to start by getting serious about the gun problem because that's what they're worried about. And they're right. They should be. Second thing is, so if you automate things like police, like traffic stops, we spend a ton of time doing traffic stops, investigating cars, responding to home burglar alarms, tons of times. A lot of this can be automated, takes police out of these potentially really dangerous situations. Second thing is to do things um, like Cahoots, which is a program in uh, Seattle where when you call 911, if you have a fire, you get a fire, fire department response. If you have a medical emergency, ambulance response. If you have a mental health crisis, mental health service provider response. Those problems can take police out of situations that they're just simply not trained to respond to. And all this, so people hear this and they go, oh, you're defunding police. I said, no, what I'm doing is taking, trying to take police out of situations that are a waste of their time, are super dangerous and unproductive, and uh, where they're not trained and leave them to do the things that they are trained to do and, and, and just those things, right? Most police and most people who live, you said this uh, earlier, Kevin, most people who live in really disadvantaged neighborhoods will tell you they are under-policed and over-policed, right? 
They're over-policed because the cop does go down the, the street in his patrol car. He sees things in the corner. He jumps out and he arrests a bunch of those kids. That's over-policing, right? There isn't, you know, is there probable cause? Is there not? I don't know. What I do know is that if I'm a kid on that corner and I'm not actually committing a crime and I get arrested for that, and this happens in lots of cities just for hanging out, that I no longer think my criminal behavior is going to be associated with my likelihood of being arrested. I see those two things as now completely separated because I got arrested when I wasn't doing anything. So it's not, there's, you've lost the deterrent effect. We just need to change how we think about policing and what we want to respond to and what is worthy of an officer's time in fundamental ways. So I mean, just lots more to say, but let me stop there. Yeah, John, I read uh, some of your stuff about the automation of uh, you know vehicles and how that might factor into police responsibilities as we go forward. That, that idea of automating uh, a number of, of basic traffic responses that, that is very interesting and I'm interesting to see how, how that'll play out over the next few years. I would push back a little bit on, uh, because that's a, sort of the meat and potatoes of a lot of the work that we do is interactions with people on traffic stops, getting the chance to see them both, uh, not just for criminal, you know, do they have their, do they have a gun, but impaired drivers, are people speeding? Are they in, in the midst of a mental health crisis? Do we need to refer them to some sort of, uh, some sort of other civil agency or whatnot. So there is an implicit danger in what we do. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend getting rid of all of that, but I do very much agree with some of what you said and, and a lot of what you've written about the, the procedural clarity for police officers. I think one of the criticisms um, that a lot of people have about police is like you mentioned, you might truly think you're minding your own business and then the police come out and you feel like you're being harassed. And we don't really know what the officer is looking for. We don't always know what the person was doing or perceived to having been done. So that communication and building a little bit of trust and understanding between the officers and the, the citizenry itself is is one piece of it to, to help build that legitimacy. But uh, you know, to disengage merely because it's dangerous, I'm, I'm not necessarily that, uh, in agreement with that. I think that the, uh, uh, I'm always looking for ways to make my job safer. My, my, my squad car has been hit twice while I've been out on traffic stops. And those are, those are close calls and inherently dangerous things. So I'm always looking for, for ways to, to do that. Um, but disengaging merely because of the danger, I'm not necessarily sure if that's the best way to build the trust that people will need when there is an exigent circumstance and we, we need to go out and, and engage in whatever that violence might, might happen to be. But I, I think strategically we're aligned in, in where, we, where we'd like to make things safer and prioritize the, uh, the duties of police. Uh, but tactically, I think there, there might be some, some compromise on both sides here. Just on a societal level, right? I mean, the the idea that so many mental health facilities were closed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, we're putting police officers in a position of having to be that, that in a position they should not be in. Um, it wasn't at one point, and I'm not sure, gentlemen, if this is still the, the case, wasn't Cook County Prison like the largest mental health facility in the country? I'm not sure if that still holds true, but it seemed that that's a whole other issue that we have to be addressing, that it should not be up to the police to be determining taking care of a person who's mentally ill and we're, we're taking money and resources and putting it towards that that should be that's it's, it's not fair to them and we need to be obviously reallocating money somehow now I, I don't know about budgets to say you know Matthew you, you know better about that about that um but it certainly seems like <laughs> that's not taking money away from you guys I'm sure is I've heard from officers that I know myself that um they're already short on budget money as it is but uh, the money's got to come from somewhere 
but those people who are mentally ill have to go somewhere too. So where do you, what do you do with them? Where do you put them? And that's uh, an interesting spot that we get put into is that um, not only are we maybe investigating something criminally, but it's not uncommon that in, an, in the course of a criminal investigation that we realize that it might be a civil commitment issue or a mental health issue. So I'm, I'm a crisis intervention officer. I've gotten the, the opportunity to do a, a bit more extra training in that. And it's really actually involving police officers in the mental health aspect of it has seemed, at least to me, it seems like it's been beneficial to defer people out of the criminal justice system if we can reasonably infer from their from their actions and from our training that what's what what's at foot wasn't a uh, a malicious intent, but rather some sort of crisis and crisis situation. So we were, even when it comes to to uses of force, time to time. You get halfway through something, and once you make it safe, you realize, oh wait, we don't need to send this person to jail. We can we can get them up to the hospital. So I I believe there is a role for police and mental health in those exigent circumstances. Uh, but like we mentioned earlier about budget cuts and, and how it's going to go for the next few years of lost revenue revenue from municipalities, uh, police are going to be kind of I think again put in that situation of being the only people they're provided by the government. Um, so keeping keeping them involved, I think, is overall a good thing. But any way that we can defer people, um, whether it be through their insurance or through county and state programs, to make sure that they're getting the treatment that they need to help prevent them going down a road that that in, is an interaction with us. You know, sometimes these public policy fail, failures end up with, with the police interaction is the symptom of a previous failure where we're just kind of the last line of defense. So I think there's a role for us. Um, but I, I agree wholeheartedly that the the lack of mental health funding, the areas that got closed, the hospitals that got closed, that has had, I think, a net negative effect over time. Um, because then who's left to, to talk to them? It's going to be a police officer. So I, I'm just, if, if I'm smiling, it's it's not in response to what you're saying. It's that you're, you're so exceptional, Matthew, that the goal should be to have every officer have this perspective. And of course, that's that's just simply not where we are, right? I mean, exceptional people are just that. They're exceptional. Um, and so the question is, you know, how do we create a policy that doesn't assume that Matthew's the person who you talk to when you interact with a police officer, but that you get the average officer with their average amount of training and the average amount of of perspective in the universe. Um, and that's the big question to me. So when you think about this, we haven't talked much about race. Race is at the heart of all of this. Um, when you look at, let's give you one example of Stop, Question, and Frisk. So Stop, Question, and Frisk was this program that was run in New York City. And the idea was that officers, if they thought that somebody was engaging in some activity that wasn't up to probable cause for an arrest, but was su sufficient for them to you know, pat them down, do you have guns, do you have drugs? So in, in one year, this escalated over time to the point where I, 20, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but 2012-ish, there were something like 700,000 incidents of stop, question, and frisk where somebody was stopped, put up against a wall, searched. Um, those, those interactions were overwhelmingly with people of color. They were overwhelmingly in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods, and they overwhelmingly produced nothing. Right over over less than three percent of those those frisks led to um, an arrest for a firearm or for for drugs. So overwhelmingly, it was just an, an an interaction that led to a lack of trust in the police. It was racially disparate. It sort of created the situation that you saw, where you saw the response to the George Floyd murder um, in New York city was, 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 you know, was, was a city that had, um, substantial problems. And that is this underlying sort of illegitimacy notion. 
So I think, you know, there's always going to be a claim that that stop, that I did stop at that corner. I did pull that person over. I did frisk that guy. And here's what came out of that. It was good. Policy is built around the averages, right? And if the average is that it's racially disparate and it doesn't produce anything and it does tremendous harm to the relationship between the police and the community, the cost benefit analysis seems sort of clear that it's not worth doing. Um, and we need, I'm, so I guess what I'm advocating is, you know, um, evidence based practices, data, data driven policies, uh, relying on the silence, science to try and help us make decisions about what, what we should be doing, how many officers we should have what they should be doing, um, how we can support them, and how we can support our communities at the same time, because there are answers. There's a little little more than I meant to say. Sorry, got carried away. I, I agree with that very much. There, the, the allocation of police time is always important. There's a, a saying I, I steal from one of my bosses that uh, it's not that we're paid. We're not paid for what we do. We're paid for what we might have to do. So when we're we're realizing how many people we need on the street, it's sort of that peak load capacity you would look at like in, in the energy sector where when it goes south, we need to have at least a certain amount. But allocating the time that we actually do spend on the street, I think that's very important. The, the evidence-based practices and you know that return to, to some of our constitutional understanding and value of the rule of law and understanding what case law says you can and can't do. Um, and should we, should we be advocating for you know just sending everybody out there go stop, pat everybody down, or should we be very clear in our rules and our procedures in that, you know, there's reasons why you stop people, there's reasons why you pat them down and putting in advocacy on that because what gets measured is what gets done. So when I say a a police interaction is the tail end of of a public policy failure, that's kind of what we're talking about here is they're saying, go out and do this good thing and we're gonna measure you for how many you do. Um, but then on the tail end, we're not always looking at the evidence uh, and the statistical value of what's be, what the outcomes of those are. So, no, I, I agree with you ent- entirely with that, that the practices need to be evaluated and reevaluated consistently. Can't hear you, Kevin. I'm sorry. Um, I, I hate to um, interject at this point and, and um, because I think this is a really fascinating discussion, but there is one more of our three main topics that I wanted to make sure we had time to, to get to. And if those of you who are in the audience, um, feel free to ask a question via the chat uh, message box and um, we will get to that by by the end uh, which is coming soon so the last question i had is is just this um you know homeland security warning uh americans about violence being domestic um uh, based on domestic extremists so there's a growing threat of ideologically motivated violent extremists um, the, the the warning that homeland security issued um even cited perceived um, grievances, uh, political grievances, false narratives, but that there's a heightened threat environment and that uh, it's likely to persist over the coming weeks. Um, there was an article in the Washington Post um, from January 27th of this year, and it cited general counsel to the National Security Administ- Agency during the Bush administration. His name is Stuart Baker. He stated, bringing to bear the tools we used against foreign terrorist attacks is really fraught and when you're talking about domestic violence and disturbance 
the opportunity to go wrong here in a way that will discredit Department of Homeland Security and the tools we use successfully to protect us against foreign extreme terrorism is very real and there needs to be great care in throwing around terrorism language and tools too freely. So there's a lot of potential questions here and we don't have much time, but I, I wanted to give each of the three of you at least an opportunity to, to perhaps talk um, about some of the, the threats we face domestically, what you might see as most concerning and why, um, and, um, or, or any other reactions you, you have to that statement. I'm sorry, my uh, my headphones cut out there for, what was that last sentence you said? Yeah, let me just try to be a little bit more succinct. Um, the, the concerns, uh, future concerns going forward, uh, what, what do you see domestically as some of the potential concerning threats? And I, I added a second question in that, you know, if we, if we treat domestic citizens uh, in a similar way, perhaps that we did in kind of the war on terror, is there this concern of those strategies and tools being counterproductive um, it, it, with domestic application? Oh yeah, absolutely. If we're if we're talking about uh, militarization of police, and then and the same uh, breath we throw out that we want to have a war on terror in the domestic sense, uh, we're going to end up not just looking like the military, but acting like it too. Uh, one of the reasons I always say we push, I push back a little bit on the militarization pieces. A lot of the gear that people would say is militarized, uh, it's all like, oh my. So like I have uh, plates that are rated to stop a rifle. I own them. My rifle, my actual rifle for work on the patrol side, I own it. So uh, the government, you know, the government buyback programs where you can buy these mine resistant vehicles or up armored Humvees and whatnot. If we're going to start talking about waging war domestically, well, war is going to look like like war. Um, and then when we're targeting our own citizens for various uh, various ide ideologies of terrorism. Uh, the FBI has warned as long as I've been a police officer that radical white extremist groups are, are traditionally the most or the largest and most present threat. But if we start uh, going down the terrorism route, you know, it's more than just a slippery slope uh, this week for, for one of my class, the, the kids listened to an excerpt of the, the Gulag Archipelago and, you know, the story of the Kulaks and how things got redefined to be people that weren't just standing against you, but people maybe who were well off or stood against you in any way. So that's a very, I, I, using that language and, and even starting to go down that road, extremely precarious. Um, I, I wouldn't want to do that to our own people to target them in, in certain ways. And uh, I would advocate the opposite actually of being a little more understanding that, uh, everybody on the other side of you isn't isn't automatically a Nazi or a communist or a terrorist, um, but actually reaching out. And uh, I know social media gets the blame for a lot of stuff, but it does sort of incentivize uh, bombastic and, and brinksmanship style conduct. So uh, maybe as educators, since we have a pipeline right to the people and that culture informs policy down the road, maybe it's a, a duty for us to, to bring in some uh, you know, air the dirty laundry, hear people out and, and realize that everybody is right in the certain circumstance, just not everybody's rights at the same time. So a little bit more understanding on that part. But yeah, I would be very wary of 
waging a domestic war on terror. Because I've, when I was in the Marines, I got to go overseas in 2007, 2008, and 2009 to Iraq and the Middle East. Um, I, I do not want that here at home. That was such a good answer. I'm afraid to give my own. Um, that will be less good. Uh, I agree with all of that. And, and I, and I, um, I, the hypocrisy of people who want to, um, you know, end mass incarceration at the same time that they want to lock up people for political speech is, is, is really, you know, it's, it's hypocrisy, uh, and it's problematic. So, so I don't want to go down that route either. I think that, that the way to deal with this is to think about whether these are organized criminal enterprises or not. And, we think about organized criminal enterprises as the mob, or we think about it as, you know, Central American gangs, or we think about it as, um, uh, you know, street gangs. And But these are proud boys. These aren't organized. To me, it's, it, it, if it is an organized criminal enterprise, we have the laws, we have the, the tools, the FBI has the tools, ATF, we have the ability to, to prosecute them. I don't think we need a lot of new laws and new approaches. I think we just need to change our political orientation and be a little less afraid of the boogeyman from the Middle East and maybe a little more afraid of the boogeyman. Um, the head of the Proud Boys lives on the Upper East Side in New York City. Um, so, you know, a lot of those uh, a, a lot of those generalizations just don't 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 hold up. There's a question, Kevin, I'm not sure if you saw it on the. Yes, I was just beginning to read it. Um... But before I do, it, did, was there anything you wanted to say, Mary? Or you okay? So we have a, a question um, in the chat, and it's from Haley, and she says, "For me, it seems like reallocating money from certain departments that are over-equipped with military riot gear, or driving around Teslas for patrols, would be a good place to start when investing money into other services." My twin has severe autism, and I worry about how if there isn't better inclusivity training um, or difference to separate emergency uh, service that the same escalation of violence will continue nonetheless. So I guess my question becomes without governmental uh, policy change to work towards gun reform, race-based escalation training, and reinvesting money into underprivileged communities, is there anything that individual departments can enact to help people faster? Just to throw it out there, uh, my squad car for many years, for a couple of years, had about 200,000 miles on it. So if anybody's got a spare Tesla running around, you're more than welcome to, don- to donate to me. We'd love to go on patrol on something that works and had more than odd number transmission gears. But uh, we got a new, new one since then, so that's working. Um, but talking about what can we do individually with departments because of the decentralization of police forces at the local that sometimes you know can't just be transferred from department A to department B because we want you know there to be more funding from one area to the other. Um, but getting in, getting involved individually with your uh, your villages, your municipalities, and talking to them, engaging with them, um, and not waiting for that crisis moment, but that sustained, steady engagement that I think that departments and municipalities might need a little help with facilitating the engagement. But getting people together on that local level to speak to each other, address each other, understand what's going on. Uh, you know, we were talking about just before the we we started this. Uh, we have a program in our town for vulnerable po- populations. So we're talking about with autism, um, we can. We can preload some of that information 
um, if somebody's in a vulnerable category, if they're elderly or they have autism, and if something happens or when the police respond to that house, uh, we will know ahead of time or we might have information ahead of time of where they might go that we can search if they get out and they're missing. So there, there may be programs that are available that you might not know about um, that would come through just good engagement with your, your local and local agencies if, if there is a specific concern that you have. There's probably more out there on those local levels that people, than people realize. Because we're so decentralized, uh, the messaging doesn't always get out to everybody. I, I agree with that. I mean, I think I think we have all sorts of interventions that we know work. There's evidence of support that that could do good things. I just don't think it's a priority for most law enforcement agencies. There's 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. We hear about the leaders. We don't hear about the laggards um, until something terrible happens there, and we don't hear about the, the muddy middle. Um, New York City spent millions and millions to 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 train. Uh, like 7,000 of their 35,000 or so officers, 30 to 35,000. So somewhere around one out of five in crisis intervention training. Um, huge investment in this. This is designed to have people be able to, to respond, to have officers be able to respond more appropriately to people who are in a crisis. Mental health crisis could be, a, you know, like alcoholism, whatever, overdose, whatever the crisis is. Then they sent them out on the streets and kept no track of who had gotten the training or not. I had no ability to, when they got a call for what they call in New York City, an emotionally disturbed person, they had no ability to figure out who was on the street who had the training was the right person to respond because they just didn't take it seriously, right? They did the PR bit, doing the training and spending the money and had the ribbon cutting and had the press conference and then didn't really care about whether it was useful on the street or not. So we have to make them care. We have to make them think it's useful. We have to hold them accountable for these things. We have to say this is a priority for my local law enforcement agency to do these things. Um, and a lot, you know, you can't just complain. You have to also show support. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's like anything else in the political process. Uh, you have to use your voice um, and you have to, you know, you have to provide a solution. You can't just complain. So just to combine those two last comments, uh, Matthew's talking about decentralization and John's talking about 18,000 different police departments. When we talk about police, it isn't as if there's one police, there's a lot of different um, uh, police jurisdictions and they're not all the same. Uh, certainly there's some, some broad strokes that we can paint with them, but I think sometimes that's important to distinguish that. Um, can I just, so oh, sorry. go ahead, Mary. I was please. going to ask to, um, Matthew and John about the idea of about where transparency also kind of falls into this too, um, and where where that kind of room there is. Um, thinking about Northern Ireland, that's one of the things that made it work. But I read an article um, in the fall, and I'm not sure if I I, I even read it, but about one of the reasons why Chicago is is in the red financially is due to a lot of the payouts that it's made to individual families um, in in terms of of um, financial payouts. And, and I didn't know about a lot of them. And maybe that's my own ignorance for not knowing about a lot of them. But I, I kind of wonder where transparency then kind of comes into that into what it is asking in terms of what departments can do to be kind of helping people faster, so to speak. Yeah, on the, on the topic of Chicago's lawsuits, uh, I use, use them as a little bit of a benchmark, and I use a lot of some of the lawsuits that I can get a hold of in our use of force training. Um, a, a number of them uh, they come in for for smaller, I don't want to say smaller issues, but 
you know, not, not the police killed somebody. It's, you know, a handcuffing incident. Uh, somebody got roughed up and the cost of litigating it is sometimes outweighed by, or vice versa is outweighed by the settlement amount. So a lot of those things kind of go away. Um, when the DOJ came in and did an investigation of Chicago and their discipline practices, um, it, it's a, it's a somewhat short read. I think it was in 20, was it 2012 or 2013, uh, when the DOJ came in and they published all of their findings. Um, we won't have time to talk about it today, but understanding what the disciplinary system looks like in Chicago um, and what some of the training practices led to in Chicago or lack thereof, I should say, um, that transparency, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be teaching our use of force class coming up here in a month or two. Um, I, I know I won't be allowed, but I, I would have anybody in there that wants to view it or wants to see it. I want, you know, I want people to see what we do, the care that goes into how much we, uh, you know, especially when it comes to individuals in crisis and to, to see the effort and the, uh, the second guessing that officers do to each other so that when we go on in training, so that when we go out, we're as well prepared as we possibly can be. Um, so there, there's room for transparency all the way around and, uh, you know, squad car videos and, and microphones, you know, they've saved more officers than they hurt. If I can ever get a body cam, I'll gladly wear it and I'll FOIA request and I'll put it on YouTube if I, if I could, because uh, the things that you could see um, if we had that increased transparency would, I think, change over that course of 10 to 20 years could change the perspective of law enforcement, especially for those who are uh, engaging with it locally. So, so I mean, I, I agree with all this, right? So um, there's a big issue with unions that we haven't talked much about. Unions exist to protect officers from spurious claims, right? But then, of course, they, they, they end up defending every claim, no matter how egregious, and the union becomes an obstacle to reforms in substantial ways. Um, and we have to talk about the role of police unions going forward if we're ever going to solve these problems. It's right there with guns on the sort of intractable problem that we prefer to ignore that we have to discuss. Now, data and transparency and accountability are one way to get out from under all of these problems, right? So, um, so um, Matthew talked about consent decrees in Chicago. So I'm working on a project right now with the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. This is this sort of the Martin Luther King organization um, supported civil rights in the 60s and does amazing work. And they have uh, released a, a website called Accountable Now that you can go online and look at that has data that my group put together. And one of the first cities that we have data from is Baltimore. And you see this amazing decline in police use of force that happens in the year. There's a consent degree where the Justice Department came in and, and took oversight of the Baltimore Police Department and implemented a number of reforms transparency and accountability. And just by doing that, the number of uses of force declines by more than half in the next two years. Um, but first it goes up, right? So first you see this tremendous increase because officers now have to report every every use of force and use of force can be something as simple as, you know, putting somebody into the car when they're not helping you or putting cuffs on when they're not giving you their hands, uh, all the way up to officer-involved shootings. So the, the reports go up and then they go down. And, and that is the way all police reforms are going to go. You're going to see a bad thing happen first as we increase, increase reporting, and then you're going to see improvements over time. Um, and that kind of accountability just by itself, the power of information, last example, power of information is just, it is, is so vast and so untapped in this. One of my favorite studies ever was a study where they, where they survey police officers, uh, where they study, they survey citizens and they say, how much do you trust police? 
And then they, in the same town, they surveyed the police officers in that town and they asked them, how much do you think the, the citizens trust you, the police? And it turns out that the citizens trusted the police quite a lot, but the officers thought that the citizens didn't trust them at all. Um, and so when the, so the intervention in this example was that the officers were shown the results of the polls with the citizens that showed that the citizens did trust them. And use of force complaints dropped dramatically in the next 12 months, just because the officers had a better view of how favorably the civilians saw them. And so they, they treated them differently. So there's a lot to be, there's a lot, there's a lot of power information, transparency, accountability, data. Um, that we need to explore before we go to, to sort of, you know, bigger, bigger reforms. And we're down to our final minute. I want to respect everybody's time, but I, I do know that several of you uh, earlier cut yourselves off. There was, there was other uh, comments you wanted to make. So I just wanted to give each of you kind of a final opportunity if there's anything you'd like to end with um, before we conclude our discussion today. I just want to give a shameless plug to our college. Uh, if you're interested in public policy, how it looks um, when it's applied in the area of first responders, we're teaching uh, Criminal Justice 114. We try to offer it as as often as possible. It's called Public Safety Leadership. It's with me, and uh, you get a chance. I, I build the course week by week, so we go through some leadership principles, some required reading, but I build it week by week on what's going on in the news, which had, the news has been a great cycle for that class because uh, we get to see what what public policy looks like in its implementation and evaluate it in real time. So if these are issues that are concerning to anybody or they want to see both sides of it and figure out what's going on, uh, you're more than welcome to take the class because we, we, we touch on everything that's happening essentially as it's happening. Very good. Mary? Thank you so much for having me on here, Kevin, and what an honor it was to work with both John and Matthew and I was very humbled. I'm, I'm so impressed with that such an awesome faculty member and Matthew. We're so blessed to have him, I think, at here at Moraine. And John, it was a, a pleasure to meet you and, and uh, I'd love to get to know you more as well. So thank you very much for having me. And I, someone did say that they could not see the pictures I was talking about on the PowerPoint. So I don't know if that's, if I can I, perhaps maybe share it later on if anyone wants to see it. Yeah. If Multimedia was... should be able to help us out and include that in the final Sorry. edited version of this. And John? I just want to say thanks again uh, for including me in your panel. I thought this was a great discussion. I'm delighted that these kinds of discussions are ongoing. I want to encourage you know students to, to, to think about this field because um, we know very little about how to police well. Um, the, the police are really, to me, uh, how police police is really the strongest signal that we have about what kind of society we have and want that those interactions between officers and civilians really sort of define where we are as 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 a society um we know very little about this there's tremendous amount of opportunity in data science in policing um all kinds of research the the the, the link between policing and social services uh behavioral services um is something that there's going to be a tremendous increase in demand for people who have training in those disciplines um i think law enforcement in 2030 is going to look way different than it does in 2021 and you can help you can help make those changes for good so i would encourage you to think about that thank you so much john mary and matthew it was a pleasure to to learn from you uh, very fascinating uh, comments and thank you for those who were able to attend the, this virtual discussion and uh, 
I appreciate all of your contributions. Thank you so much.